You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. So as an outline, just to sort of prepare for what we're learning in this chapter, um, this is one of those places in the Bible if you ever grew up, if you grew up in the church at all, or if you've, you've listened to Bible teaching and had some pastor tell you, hey, the Bible is really practical. Like God gives practical instructions and practical wisdom and all those kinds of things and have perhaps struggled at times to go, I'm not sure if I can discern all the practical stuff. I can discern like the holiness of God and I can discern the idea of salvation and the fact that on my own, I'm not good and that Jesus is my righteous. Like I might be able to perceive those things and start to latch onto that stuff. But a lot of times the, the very practical nature of who we are as followers of Christ, that's a lot of what we struggle with. Like, how do I just be more like Jesus in my life every single day, all the different circumstances. And that's where you'll, you'll hear again, preachers, pastors tell you, no, Oh, don't just be a Christian on Sundays. And if you come to Wednesday night, you know, all that kind of a thing, be a Christian all throughout the week. Well, the question is, well, how do I do that? You know, like, how am I supposed to actually be a Christian? Chapter 7 and then chapter 8 and 9, but chapter 7 here is one of those places where you can just stick your finger in the book and go, this is practical stuff. This is real stuff. And the cool part is that it's very, very practical, very real, and I'll just say in advance, very blunt about several things. Talks about marriage and the relationship between husband and wife and the very practical nature of the marriage and, and what that looks like. It also talks about singleness in relationship to ministry, among other things. It talks about a, a combo of those things where perhaps uh, in a marriage, one partner is married and one partner, or pardon me, one partner is a Christian, right? And one per- partner isn't a Christian. You're married, but they're not married to you. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> One person's a Christian, one person's not a Christian. Paul addresses that. He talks about people who've never been married. He talks about widows, people who've been married and then lost their spouse. He talks about people who are engaged to be married. This whole chapter is very practical. And like I said, also pretty blunt in a way that it lays out some truths that for some of us who were raised in a more, I'll use the word, um, puritanical fashion, where there's certain things you talk about and certain things you don't talk about. Paul sort of blows that out of the water and just lays it all out there in regard to relationships and marriage specifically. And so that sort of gives us a backdrop as to what Paul is talking about and what we can have an expectation of as we're following along and taking notes and going, okay, there should be some practical things here that I can take with me and go, oh, I can now view my relationships or my singleness or whatever and, and reflect Jesus through those things. That's the purpose. And so we do. We read the Bible because there is practical application for us in all of these things. So then the further context specifically about chapter 7. Remember that we've talked about how Paul in this letter that he's writing to a church that he's very familiar with. Paul is answering back um, some reports. Um, so first of all we talked about how he... It had been reported to Paul that there was this sexual morality that was taking place, that the church was becoming known in the larger culture as approving of things that God does not approve of, and that Paul would have taught and told them, no, that's not how you behave. You uh, don't, a son does not take his father's wife 
in a sexual fashion. And so Paul had to set those things right and correct those things um, spiritually, culturally, uh, and communally within the church. He now moves into what appears to be him answering back questions. So those people that brought the report of things that were going poorly in the church and going wrong in the church would also seem to have brought him some questions and said and asked for his response to those questions and asked for him to tell the church what his answers were. So that's sort of what brings us here uh, to jumping into chapter seven, right? And, and again, as we jump in here, it would seem, again, more of the backdrop, that because of the sexual immorality that was prevalent in the pagan world in Corinth, that, that modern city back in that day, that the church was struggling with things like, well, how are we supposed to perceive sexual relationships, even within the context of marriage? Because obviously there were some wacky things going on in the church. So, so the church is trying to figure out, as we're following Jesus, as we're believing in who he is, and us as new creations in Christ, how are we supposed to deal with these things? And so that, again, gives us that backdrop. So here's what it says in verse 1. And I'm just warning you ahead of time. We're going to take this truly verse by verse because there's a lot here. So chapter 7, verse 1 says this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. That's what gives us the indication that he's answering a question that was given to him or a situation that was presented to him. He's answering something back very specifically. And he continues on and says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Other translations will simply say it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but here in the ESV, it's very blunt. The quote is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now take note, this is not a statement of the Apostle Paul. Paul is not telling the church, hey church, listen up, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Take note of the quotation marks around that phrase. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, here's what you wrote to me, Paul is saying. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What it seems like is that the, the people who asked that question are, are asking Paul to agree with them. That's what the outline here is showing, that, that the, the, the writers of or the, the reporters to Paul of what was going on in the church are making this statement hoping that Paul will say, yes, I agree with what you're saying. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, again, a little bit more backdrop as we start walking through this. Again, in light of the sexually perverse culture that the church was in the midst of, and the influence of that culture into the church, of which Paul has already had to address, and say it's not right for a man to, to be in a relationship with his uh, father's wife, right? Paul has had to set that correctly, and now he's going to address this issue that though believers in the church would seem to be reacting against the sexual immorality of the culture by running the absolute opposite direction from it, and again, sort of responding in a very... Um, I'm again going to use this word because it has a, a good a good core to it, puritanical fashion. And what that means by using that word is to say that they're thinking that if they try and absolutely escape any type of sexual activity, that is going to somehow make them pure. That's what's going to separate them 
from the issues of sexual perversion and sin, that they somehow then treat sex as dirty or bad, and they sort of just revolt against it. That's sort of the, the impression that's being given in what's presented to Paul here in this quote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so Paul is now responding to that. And we have to understand that this is a temptation for those of us who in Christ, in uh, understanding the forgiveness of our sins and wanting to be like Christ, oftentimes what can happen is we look at something that God has created the relationship between a man and a woman, and, and it's a good relationship, and it's the right relationship, it's the way God created it. But when it's perverted or twisted by sin, which took place in the Garden of Eden and then has had its effects all the way throughout history, in our desire to do what is right and to be Christ-like, oftentimes throughout history, the church has, again, done this thing where they've gone, they've tried to overcorrect what the issue was. And by doing that, they sort of, throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. They kind of miss the point by trying to make their point. Historically, this is sort of what was happening here is there was this idea that marriage was a less holy state than celibacy. So that when the gospel was coming to people in this culture and they were believing in Jesus and understanding that their sins were forgiven, they were seeing the sexual relationship of the pagans, perhaps even things that they had been a part of, idol worship and those kinds of things, which they're being saved from. Their reaction to that then was, well, if that was unholy, that means for me to be holy, I need to leave that completely behind. I need to not have any contact with things that were being done in the world, sexual perversion, etc., those kinds of things. And so there was this thought here at Corinth, that being celibate was better than being married and having a relationship with your spouse. And so what was happening is that as people were becoming believers in Jesus, if they were in a marriage relationship, they would seek to get divorced or break up their marriage out of a desire to somehow be holier by not having a physical relationship of any kind. And so there, again, this false understanding, taking what, what God intended for good and allowing Satan to twist it and then mess with their minds, they were missing the whole point of what redemption in Christ looks like. That then everything that we're a part of when it's done in Christ is by virtue of Christ's presence in us, now sanctified. Like our marriages, like if we were married and we were pagans before, right? And there was unholy, gross stuff going on. In Christ now, our relationship by virtue of our salvation and our sins being washed clean, that relationship can now be sanctified as well. It can be a good thing because of, and here's the preeminent word for us to understand, it's because of God's grace entirely. Something that was intended to be evil, something that was intended to try and twist what God's good creation was, can be redeemed from that perversion from that twisting, right? And so Paul acknowledges the statement that is being presented to him that he's being asked to agree with. He lays that out. And then in verse two, he begins to unfold his very practical wisdom and practical word for the church. And here's what he says in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, 
each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So rather than taking the statement that was made that says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, rather than agreeing with that and saying, yeah, that's the way it should be, that when you're a Christian, when you believe upon Jesus, you should never have that physical relationship between a husband and a wife. He says, no, no, no. Actually, because of temptation, because of the temptation to abuse or, or misuse the sexual union between a man and a woman, he says, this is the answer to that temptation, that every man has his own wife and every wife has her own husband. And so we see even in this first statement of Paul answering that original question, there's this practical application of God's intended structure upon the lives of believers, right? His people. And this is a, a provision, if you will, um, to remain holy in the midst of our fleshly desires. So where our flesh might be tempted toward sexual immorality, sexual perversion of some kind, Paul is laying out and saying, this is God's way of fighting your own sexual temptations or, or rather not fighting them, but channeling them into the correct usage for them, the way that God intended it to be, marriage between a man and a woman. And you remember back to, to the Garden of Eden and then what happened later with Cain and Abel, that, that we're no longer bound to that sin that God told Cain was laying outside of his door, right? That sin that's just right there laying by the door, ready to trip us up, ready to be baggage for us, right? We're free from that. And that's why we're encouraged throughout the New Testament writings to discipline our bodies, right? Keep our bodies under discipline to the Lord. Keep our hearts disciplined and focused on the Lord and to keep our minds disciplined. All of the commands of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, it's all for the purpose of us as Christians organizing our life, structuring our life, disciplining our life to live within the context of how God created us to function. That's the whole idea. And so that's why we're encouraged to be disciplined in those areas. And we're also encouraged to be reminded over and over of God's grace toward us. So that when we just, we blow it, we miss it. And our lives are then affected by some misuse of the relationship that God created. So that when we give into temptation of some kind, because it's still around us, our, our flesh is still bound in the sense of the temptation to it, God's grace, he says, is sufficient for us in our weakness, like what he told Paul himself. So we jump into this and Paul begins to describe that relationship between a husband and a wife and how it's to be used and how it's to honor the Lord. And so verses three through five, let's take a look and read through here and then we'll, then we'll break it down little by little. It says in verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse five, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that, and mark this, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack 
of self-control. Verses 3 through 5. Without trying to get too specific, because there is a, a level of propriety that, that there is, um, there are things that are between a husband and a wife that are for them and not for everybody else. And yet, here we have it in, in Scripture, some very practical wisdom and application for the husband and wife to know about how their relationship should be structured, how it should be um, developed and, and used to glorify God. And so without getting too specific, there is some very practical things. So there's four things I want you to take note of in verses 3 through 5 that Paul tells us that are, that are incredibly practical. The first is this. It's that the idea in marriage is that there is mutuality between the husband and the wife. Mutuality. And here's what Paul says. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the husband uh, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Those two verses establish the fact that within a marriage relationship, a godly marriage, there is mutuality. Another word is equality. Between the husband and the wife, there is equality. And, and oftentimes what has happened in the past uh, is that they'll think, we'll hear things like the first part of verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then we won't hear anything else about the verses around it. And men will sort of become meatheads and go, woman, you're supposed to remember how the Bible says you're supposed to submit to me. And so give me what I want and do what I want to do. And, and you don't have a say in it. And I, you submit to me and all those kinds of things. Completely ignoring the context by which Paul was teaching, even in that scripture that says a wife should submit to her husband, even as the church is submitted to Jesus Christ. What Paul talks about there in Ephesians 5 in terms of submission is the loving submission, the loving covering of an authority figure, Jesus over the church, leading them, caring for them, sacrificing himself for them. Paul uses the same picture to say that's what a husband's supposed to do for his wife. She's submitted in the sense of under his covering, under his leadership, under his authority to say, hey, here's what's good, under his sacrificial living to say, I'm going to give up what's best for me so that you get what's best. That's the picture of submission in marriage, and, and that has been misappropriated and misused by meatheads and misogynists and guys that have sort of just wanted to go, me man, you woman, hear me roar and give me whatever, you know, like, and that's just not appropriate. Even in the language that Paul describes this under, you can see the mutuality and even perhaps this sort of priority of the woman over the man. Take note of the language in verse three. Look at what he says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Paul notes, first of all, that the husband is supposed to be serving the wife. Again, there's mutuality. The wife serves her husband as well. But the first statement he makes is that the wife has these rights. Now, conjugal rights sounds very like, it sounds almost like a prison term. And, and you know, conjugal visit and all these kinds of things. And I'm not trying to be inappropriate here. The translation's correct. There's another translation that I, I appreciate because of all that it includes. And other translations use the phrase, the affection due to the wife. 
not just the conjugal rights, but the affection due. And I like that because it, it sort of helps put that relationship in the correct context is it's not just this uh, transactional relationship which men are prone to uh, sort of bend toward no matter what. Men sort of think, I do my job, you do yours, I get what I need and you get what you need and we'll shake hands on the deal and be done, right? Like men are into transactional agreements and transactional uh, uh, relationships. And so men oftentimes fall under the impression that our relationship to God is transactional, right? Like, God, I'll do these things and then you give me some things, right? I'll be obedient, I'll go to work, I'll have a family, I'll go be a part of a church, and I'll, I'll you know, try not to cuss and do all the things that I'm not supposed to do. If, God, transactionally, I do those things, you pay me off with blessings of some kind, right? Good health and, you know, money and all those different types of things. Men are also prone to create that sort of transactional relationship model with our wives, with our spouses, right? I do my job, I'll go to work, and I'll bring money to pay the bills, you keep the house clean, and then be available for me when I have needs or wants, right? That's not how Paul outlines this at all. Paul says again, the husband should give to his wife, render to his wife, pay her, the affection due to her, and likewise, the wife to her husband, all right? Affection due, why I like that, it, for, for two reasons, number one, when we think about affection, it's not just a right, it's not just a transactional relationship, but there's a lot that goes into affection. Other words that are used in relationship to that is appreciation. The husband, in giving the affection due to his wife, should also appreciate her. There should be, and we'll talk about this more, he should communicate with her. Affection has the implication of communication, right? And also the idea of, of, and I'll use a word that I'm not a huge fan of, but like even the concept of romance comes out of that understanding of affection that's due, okay? That's, that's where that whole idea comes from, and it's all part of the relationship and helps to foster the mutual connection. And, and unfortunately, that's been the downfall of many men throughout history is not understanding what our wives need. And 1 Peter chapter 3 gives us very clear instructions about husbands living with their wives in an understanding fashion is the language that Peter uses. That means that we as husbands have a responsibility to know our wives, what makes them tick, what they like, what they don't like, how to communicate with them in a way that's effective so that I'm not doing things just the way I like to do it, but that I understand her and how to communicate and how to show her affection and here's the thing that Peter says to us husbands that's frightening. He says, if you don't live with your wives in an understanding fashion, if you're just the demanding, misogynistic, meat-eating cavehead, you know, caveman knuckle-dragger, then, then here's the thing. If you don't live with your wife in an understanding fashion, Peter would say that there's a chance that your prayers are hindered. That, like, God doesn't even hear the things that you're praying for because you're not taking care of this thing that he's given you that is precious. Just like the church is precious to Jesus, your wife is supposed to be precious to you. And if you don't take care of that and cultivate it and nurture it and show her the affection that's due, Peter says, like, there's a good chance your prayers 
aren't getting where they, they need to be, right? Now, that's, that's a frightening idea, and that should be something that we as men take seriously and go, okay, I'm getting into this marriage relationship. Yes, yes, like Paul says, because of sexu- the temptation towards sexual morality, right? There's a real nuts and bolts part of this that says, hey, it's good for me to be married so that I don't go down some roads that are inappropriate and not how God intended that relationship to be. The second point in terms of what Paul is, is saying here, Beginning in verse 5, well, well, we'll read verse 4 again. It says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Don't be, don't be a, a caveman knuckle-dragger and think that means that I'm in charge of my wife and, and she, she has to do what I say when she says it, when I say it. Because it also says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's that mutuality, that equality in the relationship. And then verse 5 says this, Do not deprive one another. So we'll stop there, and, and, and there's a further explanation to that, but that beginning of verse 5 is connected to verse 4 in this way. The second point in terms of understanding the correct relationship between a husband and a wife that Paul's teaching here is this. Number two, sex is not a weapon. Okay. The husband doesn't just have authority over his wife's body. The wife doesn't just have authority over her husband's body. They have authority over each other. There's the mutuality there. And then Paul goes on and says, do not deprive one another, okay? And this is, again, real talk, very blunt, all those kinds of things. But to say sex is not a weapon is something that's incredibly important to say we don't use, again, that transactional model of relationship to say I'm going to use that part of the relationship, the physical relationship, to get what I want, okay? So we'll, we'll, we'll say that. Third point. Paul continues in verse 5 and says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, mark this, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, verse 5, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement. Okay? Sex is an issue of communication. And again, even this teaching and talking about this as bluntly as as Paul talks about it in the church, there's many of us who've been raised in an environment where that's an uncomfortable topic to talk about. To say sex as many times as I have tonight is just like unthinkable in church, right? That's just like, why are you saying that word so many times? It's really uncomfortable. The reality is this. Again, there's been a reaction within the church out of a desire for purity and out of a desire for respecting God's creation and the way that he organizes the relationships that he created. But what has happened oftentimes is that reaction to keep things sacred and pure has gone too far to the side of conservative, so much so that it has neglected correct instruction and correct um, placement of that relationship in God's design. When we meet with married couples or, or uh, couples who are engaged to be married and we start to do premarital counseling with them, we warn them ahead of time there's going to be some very uncomfortable conversations. Now, there's a generation of people who, who might perhaps say, and perhaps with some wisdom, say, we're not going to talk about that. You know, We may show our kids a book and go, make sure you know where everything goes, and then you and your spouse go figure it out. And that might be the end of the talk or the discussion. That is one of the biggest errors that the conservative uh, era of church in America has ever 
committed, one of the biggest mistakes. Because what you see is couples struggling with understanding how sex is supposed to be a part of God's beautiful creation. And you have people, you know, years and decades into relationships going, no, that's a horrible part of our relationship. That's never worked. It's not healthy. It's not good. And in light of what Paul's teaching and how God has designed the relationship between a husband and a wife, that should be one of those things that you're just like, this is God's greatest gift to mankind. This is one of those things that we praise him for. This is awesome, right? That's, I'm not making light of it. That is, that is how God created that relationship to be. It's supposed to be awesome. And so when I say that, that sex is an issue of communication and how we've sort of shied away from that topic, when we meet with young couples who are preparing to get married, we say, this may be uncomfortable, but we need to help you understand that everything about your relationship is rooted in communication. And that goes so far as to talk about everything. Now, we don't get graphic at all, but we say you need to talk about, and then we explain, everything. You need to discuss it. You need to be able to be open about it. You need to talk about how you feel about it. You need to talk about what works and doesn't work and all those kinds of things. That is what Paul is representing in the scripture here when he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by, and the word that leads to this understanding is agreement. There's communication taking place between the husband and the wife about the fact that they're going to stop being united in the husband and wife relationship for a period of time. And then they're going to agree to come back together to avoid the temptation of Satan to try and divide their marriage relationship. There's communication that's taking place about a very intimate subject. Sex or the agreed upon abstinence from it for the purpose of seeking the Lord, is an issue of communication, all right? The, the last point out of this section that we need to take a look at, point number four, is that the lack of union, the lack of the affection due between a husband and a wife allows room for Satan to work temptation into the lives of both the husband and the wife. And that temptation is to create division. And separation. The truth of the matter is this. When God establishes the marriage relationship between a man and a wife and says that the man shall leave his father and a mother and that the two shall become one, the uniting of a, of a man and a woman in marriage is not just a legal interaction. It's not just a physical interaction. It's a spiritual interaction as well. You truly become a part of the other person and they become a part of you and you are now no longer two individuals, you're one. And so for all of the politics that would say, hey, maintain your individual identity in marriage, make sure that you have your own stuff and you're your own person and you're, you have places. No, it's good to have separation and you go have a girl's weekend and you go have a guy's night, all those kinds of things. That falls into the trap of Satan, the temptation of Satan to say, I want to divide a husband and a wife. Yeah, 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 go ahead. Refrain from the relationship, take a break, separate yourselves for spiritual purposes, that fine. that's fine. But maybe in that separation you realize, oh, I like my alone time. Oh, I like, I like being by myself. And yeah, they were getting on my nerves. And oh, they are, that is really annoying when they do that. And Satan's going to look for every avenue to create this division and this temptation to go, nah, we don't need to come back together. 
and, and be united physically and spiritually and emotionally, right? When we counsel people who have had issues in their marriage, again, just a window into the truth of this, you ask questions like, when's the last time you were united as a husband and a wife? And you start hearing things like three months and six months and two years, you can very quickly sort of dial that back and go, well, here's your first problem. <laughs> You're not actually acting like a married couple. You're not actually enjoying the benefit and exercising the thing that God says is a part of uniting you and helping your affection for your spouse. It's one of the main issues. And so that, that union, that, that spiritual union, the biochemical union between a husband and wife simply makes the relationship stronger. And there's plenty of research tests that have been done to prove this, but all I need is the apostles' words here in the Bible that says this is the way God intends for things to be. This is the way that it should be. And so it's, it's a strange thing. Satan, in wanting to take what God has created and the goodness of it, Satan always wants to twist. He always wants to pervert things. That's the idea of perversion, is twisting it and taking something and the way it was intended and, and using it differently, not using it for the way that it was intended. It's a funny thing that Satan wants to put temptation in front of single people, people who are not married yet and not supposed to enjoy the benefits of the marriage relationship. And he wants to, wants to put the temptation in front of unmarried people to have as much sex as possible and, and to pursue that relationship as much as possible before and outside of the marriage union. But how funny it is that when people get married, Satan wants to get in and divide them from the sexual relationship as much as possible. He wants to literally tear apart what God has joined together. That's why Jesus says, you know, he repeats the instructions that God gave to Adam and to Eve, that, that what God brings together, man and woman, let no person tear apart. Let no one put it asunder or, or break it apart. Jesus signs his name to that truth. Now, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, do not be ignorant of Satan's devices. That's one of those things that's important to, to always understand in temptation. The things that go against God's creation, the things that go against God's intended purpose for his people. It's the temptation of Satan. He's doing his best to get between us and God's will for us the things that God designed us for and created us for. And so to not be ignorant of Satan's devices in this subject, and again, there may be other people who have a different opinion about this and might say, Lukeon, you shouldn't have gone as far as you did. You shouldn't have talked about what you talked about. That's inappropriate. All I have to say is that as Paul lays this out here, this is wisdom. This is something that every single, single person looking forward to marriage should have the expectation of and knowledge of, of what a marriage should look like. And what every married person should look at their own marriage and go, okay, is, is this what our marriage looks like? Is this, are we matching up with this? And if we're not, perhaps there's some things here that we can grow in and learn and, and be able to create within our marriage God's will for us and enjoy the blessings and the benefits of it. And so truly in life, I don't think there is a subject that is too sensitive or inappropriate to talk about when, when Scripture addresses it, okay? So jumping into verse 6, 
Paul says this, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What does Paul say when he says, I wish that all were as I myself am? At this point in time, there's the understanding that Paul is single, that he's not married, he's not attached to a wife. And Paul uses the example of his life not as a command, remember the question that was, or the statement that was being addressed to him that they were asking him to agree with. It's good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. And Paul's going, listen, this is a concession. I'm saying this not as a command, but it can be a choice that you make that everyone could be like me, single, unattached from an earthly marriage or relationship. But he's saying this isn't a command. It's just an example of what is possible to remain single to refrain from the marriage relationship, and he'll go on a little bit later and explain what some of the freedoms associated with singleness are. But here's the last point that I want to make for tonight. In this statement, Paul is acknowledging, look at verse 7 again, I wish that all were as I myself am. Take note of the second part of this verse. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In the context of singleness versus marriage, Paul is putting both of them into the category of God's gifts. Now, this is an interesting little aside that sort of takes us in a different direction, but I think it's important for us to latch on to and understand. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talked about what we call the gifts of grace, things that God entrusts to people to, to use as encouragement for one another, for the purpose of ministry. And there's a list of things in Romans chapter 12 that you could see that are, that are gifts of God's grace. His, his uh, character being given to us in certain measures according to faith. Things like uh, encouragement and generosity, those kinds of things. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well, we'll see in a couple of chapters, there's a list of giftings that are called gifts of the Holy Spirit which God uses by issuing out and giving out at specific times for people to use to be an encouragement, to build up the church, actually. And that's where we th see things like prophecy and speaking in tongues and, and spiritual things that take place. That's the Holy Spirit gifting to an individual at a, at a moment in time <clears throat> to be able to be an encouragement and to build up the church. Now, here's the thing to understand. Oftentimes, when we look at those lists, whether it's Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, or we look at things like the gifts that Jesus gave in Ephesians 4 for the building up of the church, right? The prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, those kinds of things. When we see lists in the Bible, I know I have sometimes thought to myself, that's it. That list is exclusive and total in its authorship and writing. That's not true, though, because Paul also says here that singleness is a gift of God. And he's implying that marriage is also a gift of God. God gives various gifts, he says. <coughs> each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. What he's setting against each other is to say that if you're single, that's an absolute gift from God to be able to be single and pursue serving the Lord in that way. And being married is another gift of God to be able to be married and pursue serving the Lord in that way. And here's why I think the Apostle Paul is saying this. It's because all of humanity suffers from the same syndrome. And the syndrome is the grass is always greener, right? 
That's the thing. We see someone else's life. We see someone else's opportunity in a ministry. We see somebody else's success or whatnot. And we go, oh, if only my life could look like that person's over there. My situation, boy, they don't understand. It's, you know, you're not married here. You don't understand what this is all about, right? If only I could be married to that person. Only, if only I could be single. Look at that single person and the freedom that they have, right? Oh, if I could just be single, then I could really serve the Lord. Or, I'm single and all our church ever does is talk about marriage and kids and that's all they seem to ever talk about. There's no place for a single person at the church. If only I were married, then my life could actually be useful in the church or for the Lord or for me to feel fulfilled. It's one of the great crimes of the church, truly, is to... Is to uh, set single people sort of aside, right? And go, no, you know what? We're going to have a marriage group because they're unique and special. And, you know, well, we'll have a singles group too. And the hope is really that they'll just find a mate within the singles so that they can join the married group, right? That's just sort of how it's been treated. And that's not always the case. But I think there's a stigma with being single in the church. There has been for a long time. And here's what Paul says. Each condition, each state is a gift from God. That's an important thing to understand that no matter what, no matter what, what, whatever state we find ourselves in, whether it's single or in this case, whether it's married, there's an appropriateness and a practical application that God wants us to understand about how to use that relationship or our position. And that was, that's what the rest of the chapter is going to talk about and how we've even discussed previously a couple weeks ago where Paul says, live in the way that you were called. When you became a believer, whatever context of life, not, not to remain in the sin that you were in or, or a part of things that are ungodly, but wherever you are in life, and, and that's where Christ drew you to himself, stay there. He's, he's got you there for a reason. He saved you in that position for a reason. So I, I'm sort of giving the end of the story here, but Paul is telling the married couples, listen, you're not going to be holier by separating yourselves from the marriage relationship. Your marriage relationship is a gift from God. And then he's also going to tell the single people, listen, don't worry about getting married. Your, your singleness is a gift from God that he's going to use for his purposes. And so we'll continue studying this next week and, and get into more of it. And there's just a ton of good stuff in terms of what Paul wants to teach about the advantages of being married and the advantages of being single as well. So we'll end there for the evening.